Welcome to Sound Prints Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prints is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prints for the week of January 6, 2019. We hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We enjoyed bringing Sound Prints to you this past year. And we look forward to another year of programming in 2019. The American Council of the Blind has a great opportunity for students who are legally blind to earn a scholarship, whether you're going to a technical college, an entering freshman, undergraduate, or graduate student. Over $55,000 in scholarships will be awarded to students this year. Scholarships are awarded to students who are legally blind, Legal blindness is defined as an individual who cannot see better than 20 over 200 in the best eye with glasses or contact lenses or whose visual field in the best eye is 20 degrees or less at the widest diameter with glasses or contact lenses. To be eligible, you need to be legally blind, maintain a 3.0 GPA, and be involved in your school or local community. As a scholarship winner, you will experience firsthand ACB's National Conference and Convention in July in Rochester, where you will meet other students who share the same life experiences, create lasting friendships, and network with individuals who understand what you are going through and can help you with your journey. The scholarship application must be submitted no later than February 15, 2019 at 11.59 p.m. Central Time. For more information, please contact Nancy Christine Fila at 612-332-3242 or call 800-866-3242 between the hours of 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. Central Standard Time. To apply, please visit http colon slash slash acb.org slash 2019-scholarship. We look forward to receiving your application materials. The National Research Training Center on Blindness and Low Vision at Mississippi State University is recruiting participants for a survey about job retention and career advancement. Have you had success or experienced challenges keeping a job? Have you had success or difficulty moving up the career ladder? Please share your experiences of attempting to keep or advance in a job, even if those experiences were not successful. The survey is open to individuals who are blind or have low vision, born between the years of 1950 and 1991, who have ever been employed post-education for at least minimum wage. The survey may be completed electronically at tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C slash retention, R-E-T-E-N-T-I-O-N dot advancement, A-D-V-A-N-C-E-M-E-N-T, or call 662-546-0737 to request an appointment to participate by telephone. Participants who complete the survey may enter into a drawing for a gift card for $100. Please know this survey may take 30 to 40 minutes to complete. For assistance or further information, visit the Project Overview webpage, 
for job retention and advancement, a mixed methods investigation, or contact Ann Steverinson, S-T-E-V-E-R-S-O-N, at acc155 at msstate.edu, or Adele Cruden, C-R-U-D-D-E-N, at ac four one at msstate.edu. On page two is an article from the New York Times about a music school for blind and visually impaired people in New York City that has been told after over 100 years that it needs to find a new home. This appears to be a case of the changing times and a change that at least at this time may not be for the best. Diabetes is one of the leading causes of blindness, and on page 3 we have included three articles about new products and current research that we thought might be of interest to many of you, whether you yourself are diabetic or not. The first article is about the first totally implantable continuous glucose monitoring device, now approved by the FDA. The second article adds more information to this story, and the third article discusses the pros and cons of suggested revised standards for desirable A1C levels in diabetes. And on page 4 is the Sound Prince calendar. Page 2 The following article was posted by Dr. Joel Snyder, Director of ACB's Audio Description Project, on the ACBL email list on Friday, December 28, 2018. The article is entitled, Why a School for the Blind Musicians is Being Evicted at Christmas Time, by Corey Kilgannon, December 20, 2018. It was supposed to be a cheery Christmas performance in front of the large Christmas tree at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but the music school ensemble seemed to be singing for its survival. The school, which has served blind and visually impaired musicians in Manhattan since 1913, finds its existence imperiled by its own parent group, a charitable organization with a mission to help the blind. Singers were led into place by volunteers or guide dogs, but before the music started, the school's executive director, Dr. Leslie Jones, told the crowd inside the museum's medieval sculpture hall that the school would be separating at the end of the month from its longtime parent entity, Lighthouse Guild International. This was a cordial take on the situation. The Lighthouse Guild sent a letter to students in June in large print for the visually impaired, notifying them that the 105-year-old school would no longer be part of the Guild's future and that it must leave the Guild's building on West 64th Street. This decision was difficult because the school has been a part of the fabric of Lighthouse Guild for over 100 years, Dr. Alan Morse, president of the Guild, wrote in the letter. Jillian Rackett, 24, who sings in the choral ensemble and volunteers at the school as a music teacher on Saturdays, recalled getting the letter over the summer. To find out in some dry letter that we have to look for a new home, it just seems like, oh, 
We don't really care about you, Ms. Rackett said. Faced with an order to vacate by the end of December, school officials will spend Christmas week packing up 12 grand pianos, its estimable Braille music library, and other items, presumably to go into storage. Ms. Jones declined to comment on the situation, explaining that she did not want to jeopardize the school's separation arrangements with the Guild. She referred requests for comment to the Guild. A Guild spokeswoman said its officials would not comment. Ms. Rackett provided the Times with a copy of Dr. Morse's letter, which said the school's leaders must make organizational changes to direct our resources to support and serve the largest number of people who are living with or potentially facing vision loss. End of quote. School volunteers and students said that the school, officially known as the Philemon M. D'Agostino Greenberg Music School, was scrambling to find temporary space in Manhattan, a daunting challenge given its limited budget and Manhattan's high rents by late January to avoid canceling the spring semester. Ms. Jones, they said, was scrambling to incorporate the school as a nonprofit in order to organize its own finances and raise funds as well as transfer its endowments and funding streams out of the Guild's control. The school's revenue has come from its modest tuition, grants, and private fundraising, as well as funding from the Guild, which also provided space for the school. Quote, She's been trying to fight for the future of the school and the survival of the school, said David Malkin, a lawyer in Manhattan, who helps the school with its endowment. Quote, What's going to happen for them is uncertain, he said of the school. They're hoping they'll find a new home and sustaining support to continue their mission. End of quote. The school has been an unsung staple of New York City arts circles for decades, including 20 years of performances at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and holiday recitals at Midtown Manhattan office buildings. The blind teenage jazz prodigy Matthew Whitaker is a student there, and accomplished alumni include the blind musician Jose Feliciano, who is currently traveling in Vienna, but sent a statement recalling that the school helped him learn music transcription and other skills. Mr. Feliciano called the Guild's decision to no longer house the school callous. Quote, Perhaps they don't care anymore, he said. When you consider the school's benefits and how important and meaningful it is to so many people, it's just very sad. End of quote. The school serves 120 students, children and adults of varying musical levels. All students attend part-time for lessons, classes, and other services, including Braille music transcription. In addition to several performance groups, the school has an archive of roughly 25,000 Braille and large print musical scores that it said is the second in size only to the collection held by the Library of Congress. Losing their home has been particularly upsetting for the students, some of whom spoke of their disappointment in the Guild, which has long promoted itself as a beacon of hope and an advocate for the blind. Quote, 
The school has been such an empowering place, and it's just so painful to see these students being sent a message that blind education doesn't matter, and that the school is not worth keeping open, and they have no say in it, said Leona Godin, G-O-D-I-N, a former student. For more than a century, the school was part of Lighthouse International, which in 2013 merged with Jewish Guild Healthcare to form the Lighthouse Guild. The Guild has also closed the Harriet and Robert Heilbrunn School for Students Who Are Blind and Have Other Severe Disabilities. Its 33 workers were laid off this month, and its 53 students were placed in other schools. The music school is named after its main benefactor, Philemon D'Agostino Greenberg, a self-taught stock trader who died in 2000 when she was 101. Mr. Malkin is the director of the Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, which donates $100,000 a year to the school and has served on the Guild's board of directors. But he said he resigned from the board because he was so disturbed by its decision. Regarding the students, he said, quote, They are at risk for so many other things, and to lose this resource and opportunity puts them even greater at risk. End of quote. After the holiday concert on Wednesday, one student, Daniel Gillen, G I L L E N, 24, tucked away his braille choral music and picked up his long white cane. He said he was hopeful that the school would find at least interim space. Quote, We're not going to be left on the sidelines, he said. Page 3. This next article is from a mailing list called Living with Diabetes from Everyday Health. The article subject is FDA approves first implantable continuous glucose monitor. This was posted on December 24, Christmas Eve. The CGM, called Eversense, was approved for people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Is the device for you? This is from the website everydayhealth.com. The Eversense continuous glucose monitoring system can be used for 90 days with the same sensor. It's the first fully implantable device approved by the Food and Drug Administration. This article is by Sherry, S-H-A-R-I, Roan, R-O-A-N. The Eversense Continuous Glucose Monitoring System contains a sensor inserted under the skin on the arm or abdomen, and it's attached to a monitor. This is courtesy of Sensonics, June 26, 2018. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved the first implantable continuous glucose monitoring system, CGM, device for people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The device, called the Eversense Continuous Glucose Monitoring System, provides monitoring for up to three months, and it's approved for people age 18 and older, according to an FDA press release on June 21st. Effective management of diabetes involves avoiding a buildup of sugar in the blood, called hyperglycemia. Excess blood sugar, or glucose, 
can lead to many serious health complications, including heart disease, stroke, eye disease, kidney failure, and serious severe foot problems, the American Diabetes Association notes. People with diabetes must carefully monitor their glucose levels to help reduce the risk of these complications. How ever since differs from other continuous glucose monitoring systems. A continuous glucose monitoring system can help people with diabetes manage their blood sugar without the nuisance of performing multiple finger pricks during the day to assess their glucose levels. These systems have been designed to monitor glucose by using a tiny sensor that's inserted under the skin on the arm or abdomen and is attached to a monitor. Traditional continuous glucose monitoring systems involve replacing sensors every three to seven days, depending on the model, according to the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. In a June 21, 2018 press release, the device's manufacturer, Sensonics, said that Eversense is the first fully implantable device and can be used for 90 days without changing the sensor. Eversense uses a fluorescent chemical that produces a small amount of light when exposed to blood sugar. The light is measured and the measurements are sent via Bluetooth every five minutes to a mobile app that displays the readings, trends, and alerts. The tiny wireless sensor is inserted under the skin on the upper arm with a lightweight 1 by 1.5 inch transmitter is affixed to the skin over the sensor with adhesive. The transmitter can be removed and recharged without discarding the sensor. It has the longest duration in the body for any glucose monitor that the FDA has approved, says David Klonoff, K-L-O-N-O-F-F-M-D, the medical director of the Diabetes Research Institute at Mills Peninsula Medical Center in San Mateo, California. Dr. Klonoff has studied continuous glucose monitors. Quote, it's a significantly longer time period, he says. If you're managing type 1 or type 2 diabetes, is the Eversense device right for you? The approval illustrates how technology is rapidly changing the management of diabetes, said Ronnie Aronson, A-R-O-N-S-O-N, M-D, an endocrinologist and the chief medical officer of LMC Diabetes and Endocrinology in Toronto, who has also studied continuous glucose monitoring. This device is best suited for anyone trying to achieve optimal glucose control, he says. I think that this type of implant sensor is going to be the way of the future. I don't think a decade from now we'll still be applying patches to the skin to monitor glucose. The technology is driven by the desire to make diabetes management easier and thus much more effective, says Tim Goodnow, G-O-O-D-N-O-W, the president and chief executive officer of Sensonics. He says the device is best suited for people with type 1 diabetes and people with advanced type 2 diabetes who are dependent on insulin. Quote, 
The attribute our patients are finding most attractive comes from long-term wear, he says. This is an opportunity to put it in and forget about it. The key aspect when managing diabetes is you'd like to make it as invisible as possible. End of quote. It's important for people with diabetes to have choices in how they manage the disease, says Carol Levy, L-E-V-Y, M-D, a professor of endocrinology, diabetes, and bone disease at the Mount Sinai Diabetes Center in New York City, who was an investigator on a key clinical trial of the Eversense device. Quote, this isn't a one-size-fits-all disease, she says. We need to have options to meet each and every one of our patients' needs. I think this provides a new option for a subset of people with diabetes. The Eversense monitor may appeal to patients who have trouble remembering to change short-term glucose monitors, Klonoff says. Quote, it depends on what's important to you. There will be a market for a variety of these products, end quote. What else to know about the newly approved implantable CGM? The clinical trial the approval was based on showed that the device read glucose levels with precision, Dr. Levy says. Quote, this, like many of the newer sensors, has a pretty high level of accuracy, he says. Potential problems linked to the Eversense device include trouble with insertion or removal, such as allergic reactions to adhesives, bleeding, bruising, or infection, according to the FDA. There is a risk that blood sugar levels could plunge too low or rise too high if the device is inaccurate or the person wearing it misses alerts. But in studies, less than 1% of Eversense users experienced a serious adverse event. The FDA will continue to monitor the safety of the system in a post-approval study. The procedure to insert the device is performed in a doctor's office and takes a few minutes. The need to return to the doctor's office every 90 days to replace the sensor is unlikely to deter patients, Dr. Aronson says. Patients have to travel to see the doctor that often anyway, so the frequency is not unusual, Aronson says. In the coming months, endocrinologists will be required to learn the sensor insertion and replacement process. Quote, it will be a new learning curve for us, but endocrinologists are excited to have this and offer it to our patients, Levy says. People using the device will still need to take blood tests at home with finger sticks, Goodnow says. But future devices may eliminate the need for finger sticks. It's not yet clear how much the device will cost, Goodnow says, adding that the company is working now with insurers to negotiate cost. In general, he says, continuous glucose monitors in the United States tend to cost insurers about $10 a day. The cost to patients will depend on their own insurance plans, deductibles, and copays. It may be several more months before patients can obtain information about cost and insurance reimbursement, he says. What other advances in diabetes technology lie ahead? 
technological advances in diabetes care were a focus of the American Diabetes Association Scientific Sessions meeting held June 22 to 26 in Orlando, Florida, with multiple presentations on emerging systems to ease management of the disease. Aronson presented data on an implanted continuous glucose monitoring system for adults and adolescents with type 1 diabetes, showing the system provided accurate measurements with no major side effects through 180 days of use. Quote, the key finding on the efficacy is the remarkable accuracy throughout the 180 days, he says. There was no loss of accuracy as time went on. Continuous glucose monitoring systems may be especially appealing to adolescents and young adults who are already tech-savvy, he says. Continuous glucose monitoring systems are also being combined in closed-loop systems that deliver insulin. Another study presented at the ADA meeting showed positive results for an implantable continuous glucose monitoring system for adults with type 1 diabetes. The Omnipod hybrid closed-loop system combines continuous glucose monitoring with a personalized algorithm to deliver insulin through the skin with a small pump. A small study by researchers at Stanford University in California showed the device delivered good glucose control in a five-day testing period. Quote, the technology is here, and more and more companies will develop technologies, Aronson said. The future of diabetes is going to be largely tech-based. For more on diabetes technology, check out Diabetes Daily's article, How Smart Technology is Changing Diabetes Care, from Diabetes Daily. How Smart Technology is Changing Diabetes Care. This article is by Maria Muccioli, M-U-C-C-I-O-L-I, Ph.D., July 1, 2018. Diabetes management technology, including insulin pumps, continuous glucose monitors, CGMs, and closed-loop insulin delivery systems, are quickly evolving and are poised to become the standard of care for patients with diabetes. We spoke to pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Jennifer Schur, S-H-E-R-R, about the benefits, obstacles, and future perspectives on smart technology in diabetes management. Introduction. Dr. Jennifer Schur was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 1987 and quickly became passionate about diabetes research and taking care of others living with diabetes. She received her MD from Rutgers University and the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. As she was interested in conducting clinical research, she also earned a PhD in investigative medicine from Yale University. Jennifer Schur, Ph.D., currently practices as a pediatric endocrinologist and is an associate professor at Yale. She has participated in 
numerous clinical trials on closed-loop technologies, including the Medtronic 670G and is currently involved in the Artificial Pancreas Project at Yale and is also on the steering committee for Type 1 Diabetes Exchange, T1DX. Living with diabetes herself and also being a researcher and practitioner in the diabetes field gives Dr. Scherer a unique perspective on the ongoing developments in diabetes treatment. CGMs, the new standard of care. CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, constitute one of the most exciting diabetes technologies of the century. Patients are now able to view their blood glucose levels in close to real time, around the clock. Many users express that their CGM has helped them better understand their blood glucose trends, making faster adjustments, and overall improve glycemic control while helping to safeguard against significant hypo and hyperglycemia. Although CGMs are primarily used by the type 1 diabetes population, Dr. Scherr believes the technology will have great implications for patients with type 2 diabetes as well. Quote, as we learn more and more, greater use in type 2s is going to be huge. I think that so much of what we counsel patients on in that population is oftentimes lifestyle changes, how various foods impact their blood sugar. Providing people with real-time window to be able to see what's happening when you eat a particular food can really help individuals understand how things are impacting them on a day-to-day -day basis. In addition to daily use, Dr. Scherr believes that CGMs will soon become more widely used in the clinical setting, such as in emergency rooms and during surgery. Quote, especially during outpatient procedures, we don't need to take away the tools that have been so great in helping patients manage themselves, Dr. Scherr notes. Dr. Scherr also believes that CGMs can serve as valuable diagnostic tools, such as for the early detection of diabetes. Quote, We've seen issues where we have kids coming in who are very, very, very early in the course of type 1 diabetes. Being able to gather some outpatient data about the variability of their glucose levels is going to help us, Dr. Scherr explains. Although a formal diagnosis would not typically be made at a very early stage, i.e. based on the A1C, seeing spikes in blood glucose levels may prompt more screening, such as the oral glucose tolerance test, which can aid in making an early diagnosis. Time in range. The new gold standard. The hemoglobin A1C test which estimates the average blood glucose level over several months, has long been the gold standard in assessing diabetes control in the clinic. While the A1C provides valuable information, it certainly does not paint the whole picture of blood glucose control. Dr. Scherr believes that with more widespread use of CGMs, the time-in-range metric 
will soon become the preferred method of follow-up for many practitioners. Intimately tied with glycemic variability, the time and range metric provides valuable information about hypo and hyperglycemic event rate and severity. Moreover, there is scientific evidence that points to glycemic variability as an independent risk factor for the development of diabetes association complications. Quote, if we can help explain why it's such an important metric, I think we can really create the revolution of making this the preferred follow-up method. Clearly, there is a role for A1C, but I think as more individuals use time and range, we'll have a much better way to identify the fluctuations people are experiencing and therefore really impact their daily life, Dr. Schur explains. Closed-loop systems. Closed-loop insulin delivery systems, whereby an insulin pump communicates with the CGM and automatically adjusts insulin delivery, are fast evolving and appear to be incredibly promising in reducing the burden of diabetes management for many. Quote, I am probably most excited about hybrid closed-loop therapy. I was an investigator for the adult study and a pivotal trial that led to the commercialization of the product. I also had the first pediatric patient who started on the system last year, which has just been an absolute blast, seeing it roll into clinical practice, Dr. Scher describes. Dr. Scher has participated in numerous closed-loop clinical trials and has seen firsthand how it can help patients gain better control of their diabetes and improve quality of life. She is passionate about ongoing research and clinical trials that aim to improve performance and safety and about facilitating more mainstream use and accessibility. Obstacles to Widespread Technology Use A major obstacle to the more widespread use of smart diabetes technology is simply a lack of awareness by practitioners. Many general practitioners, in particular, are not educated about insulin pumps or CGMs. It is seldom that patients are presented with such options outside of the endocrinologist's office. However, many people with diabetes do not see a specialist and never learn about such things. The lack of awareness in the medical community translates outside of the office setting and into emergency and surgery rooms. Unfortunately, the unfamiliarity with the technology by medical staff can negatively affect patient outcomes. I can attest to this as I had to struggle to convince my medical team to approve CGM use during my cesarean section, not even two years ago. Earlier this year, I similarly struggled to convince an anesthesiologist to keep an eye on my CGM while I was ongoing a short outpatient procedure under general anesthesia. Thankfully, I managed to convince her, and at the end of the day, she commented on what a useful and impressive device it is. Another issue that prevents the extensive use of smart diabetes technologies is the cost. Many insurance companies do not cover such devices, and in particular for patients with 
type 2 diabetes, often patients have to fight to convince their insurance companies that they have a medical necessity for a particular product. Likely, this issue is primarily driven by a lack of understanding of the rigorous nature of diabetes management and the degree to which these tools can help. Overcoming obstacles and looking toward the future. How do we go about breaking these barriers to facilitate more education and improve product availability? Dr. Schur believes that better provider education is at the root of the solution providing additional resources to physicians in the form of webinars, for example, and even more importantly, training current residents to understand smart diabetes technologies and patient benefits are key priorities. Quote, the growth of technology integration has been really ramping up. There have been a four to five fold increase, especially in the pediatric age group, of sensor use. I think it speaks to the fact that our tools are getting better and we're understanding more about what to do with it. Because of the technologies are getting smarter and they're easier to insert and downloads are getting easier and more interpretable, we'll get over that hump. I think we are just at that tipping point, says Dr. Schur. Dr. Schur believes that the solution to insurance coverage issues will follow an uptick in provider and patient education. Once penetrance is increased into the general practice and more providers are aware of the tremendous benefits of smart technologies for people with diabetes, more communication between providers, organizations like the JDRF and the ADA, and insurers and regulators will take place to facilitate changes in coverage. Undoubtedly, smart technologies for diabetes management have come a long way in the last decade and are making a positive difference for many patients. Dr. Schur recently presented at the American Diabetes Association 78th Scientific Sessions. We will continue to closely follow and report on new developments. For more information, read First Implantable Continuous Glucose Monitor receives FDA approval for type 1 and type 2 diabetes on everydayhealth.com. And finally, here's another article from everydayhealth.com entitled, Doctors Group Issues New A1C Guidelines for People with Type 2 Diabetes. It is now recommended that people with type 2 diabetes should be treated to hit an A1C level between 7 and 8% instead of the previous 6.5 to 7% benchmark, but these new guidelines have drawn controversy. This article is by Brian Mastroianni, M-A-S-T-R-O-I-A-N-N-I, and is medically reviewed by Casey, K-A-C-Y, Church, MD. A1C is a two to three month average of blood sugar levels. If you have type 2 diabetes, you've long heard that generally a good A1C to aim for is 6.5 to 7 percent. A1C is a two to three month average of blood sugar glucose levels, and physicians use the results of this blood test to estimate how well or poorly diabetes is being controlled. 
But now a doctor's group is arguing that a higher general A1C target between 7 and 8 percent would on balance not be any riskier than the lower target range. In fact, they say, the new range may help people with type 2 diabetes save money, mitigate the burden of taking medication, and for older people managing the disease, possibly avoid complications associated with low blood sugar, hypoglycemia. Quote, over the past five years, we have learned more about how much tight glucose control impacts patient health. Much of this evidence came from three large randomized controlled trials of tight glucose control, which showed less absolute benefit than an earlier trial conducted in the 1980s and 1990s. There has also been increasing evidence of potential harms from low blood sugar reactions, especially in older patients, says Rodney Hayward, H-A-Y-W-A-R-D, M.D., an internist at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, whose research was used to draft the new guidelines by the American College of Physicians, ACP. The guidelines published in March 2018 in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine have drawn criticism from some medical professionals. Some argue that the data set used to inform the new A1C target was imperfect and that the new guidelines may encourage more leniencies among doctors whose patients' blood sugar isn't controlled. The ACP recommendations counter those of other reputable diabetes groups, including the American Diabetes Association, which recommends a general A1C target of 7 for non-pregnant adults with diabetes and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, which advises those individuals to strive for an A1C of 6.5. A closer look at the doctor's proposed A1C guidelines. To make the new recommendations, study authors analyzed past studies and guidelines issued by other organizations from around the world. Beyond making the general recommendation for a new A1C target, the group proposed the following three guidelines. Ease up on diabetes treatment for any patient with an A1C of 6.5 or lower to avoid his or her blood sugar levels from dipping further. Individualize management goals based on factors like life expectancy, cost of care, and medication risk. Do not set a target A1C level in people who have a life expectancy of less than 10 years due to advanced age, 80 years old or older, have certain chronic conditions, or are living in a nursing home. Six co-authors of the report assessed each guideline using a tool that evaluates research materials based on six criteria, including clarity of presentation and a study's scope and purpose. While the ACP did not return repeated requests for comment before publication of this story, Jack Endy, E-N-D-E, M-D, president of the ACP, who is based in Philadelphia, said in a news release that avoiding treatment in people 
with an A1C below 6.5, quote, will reduce unnecessary medication harms, burdens, and costs without negatively impacting the risk of death, heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure, amputations, visual impairment, or painful neuropathy, referencing macrovascular complications. Type 2 diabetes is a widespread problem and is linked to the complications Dr. Indy mentions in the release. There are more than 30 million people in the United States who have diabetes, with 90 to 95 percent of them having type 2 diabetes, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. You get diabetes when your cells develop a resistance to insulin, causing your pancreas to create more insulin at a rate that it simply can't keep up with. High blood sugar, hyperglycemia, can cause a range of serious health complications related to diabetes, like loss of vision, heart disease, and kidney disease. And the current A1C target is meant to help mitigate those risks. More closely associated with type 1 diabetes, but also an issue in people with type 2 diabetes, especially those who are over age 65, is hypoglycemia, according to an article published in March 2018 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, as previously reported by Everyday Health. Undetected severe low blood sugar called hypoglycemia, unawareness, can lead to serious complications, such as diabetic coma, seizures, and death. Why the ACP guidelines have sparked some controversy. Reaction to the ACP's new guidelines has been mixed. Utpal, U-T-P-A-L, Pajvani, P-A-J-V-A-N-I, M-D, Ph.D., an endocrinologist and assistant professor at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City, praises the recommendation to personalize A1C targets, as well as the guideline to account for patients' references and their potential burden and cost of medication. He adds that the recommendation for not making elderly patients' A1C targets too stringent has a great deal of logic to it considering the risk of hypoglycemia. But other parts of the guidelines give Dr. Pajvani pause. Pajvani says shifting the A1C target to between 7 and 8%, as well as de-intensifying therapy for patients below 6.5%, are recommendations that the ACP took from past trials of patients with long-standing type 2 diabetes who also had heart disease, meaning that the findings might not be relevant to all people with type 2 diabetes, specifically those who don't have heart disease. Pajvani says that one big blind spot in the new guidelines involves the fact that they don't take into consideration the fact that a lot of treatments endocrinologists use help minimize hypoglycemia and weight gain and have proven benefits on heart disease, for instance. He adds that since the new guidelines focus so much on macrovascular complications like heart attacks, 
They ignore and gloss over microvascular risks. Think vision impairment or end-stage renal disease that could come from relaxing the old A1C targets to 7 to 8 percent. For his part, Dr. Hayward says that it is difficult to see what kind of impact the new guidelines will have on diabetes treatment down the line. He says in the past, shifts in guidelines do not substantially impact real-world clinical practice. He hopes the new guidelines will increase awareness among clinicians about the value of striving for tight glycemic control, which he says has been greatly overestimated. Fears expressed by some diabetologists that some clinicians may become overly complacent in response to the new guidelines should be taken seriously, but overtreatment of glucose has been well documented and is also a legitimate concern, Hayward adds. Pajvani maintains the opposite view. Quote, I'm worried about the effects of these guidelines, he says. Endocrinologists likely won't apply these guidelines, but most patients with type 2 diabetes are cared for by primary care physicians and internists. Page 4, Sound Prince Calendar. On January 8th, the Support Alliance for the Visually Impaired, SAVVY, will have a meeting from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at the Wing Avenue Baptist Church in Owensboro. For information, call Rick Bogus at 270-684-4418. January 9, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its conference call meeting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time at 605-475-4700, intercode 155619. For more information about NKCB, call Jerry Slusher at 859-781-7369. On January 9, the KCBPR Membership Committee will hold its meeting at 8 p.m. by conference call at 669-900-6833, intercode 3572-595-193. January 10, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have a support group meeting. This is an in-person meeting from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. For more information, call 502-895-4598. On January 11, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will have its roundabout, education and technology, 3 to 5, discussion time, 5 to 6, dinner, 6 to 7, bargain table, 7 to 7.30, and bingo, $2 a person from 7.30 to 9.30. At United Crescent Hill Ministries, call to sign up at 502 502- 8954598 January 12 is the Greater Louisville Council Board meeting at 11 a.m. by phone call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444 January 13 the Kentucky Council of the Blind Next Generation will have its chapter meeting at 8 p.m. by phone This is the regular monthly chapter meeting for visually impaired people under 40 years old who are members of the Kentucky Council of the Blind or who are interested in participating in the chapter. The number is 669-900-6833 and the code is 3572-595-193.
On January 13, ACB Families invites everyone to participate in our first teleconference of the year. The January topic is always financial in nature, and this year we will have a financial planner from Ameriprise with us. The phone number is 712-432-3900, and the code is 796096. The call will take place at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and all are invited. On January 14, KCB Next Generation will have its nationwide conference call at 8.30 p.m. on the Zoom line at 669-900-6833 and enter code 3572-595-193. For questions about the Next Generation National Conference Call, Contact Amanda Selm at 502-750-1774 or email her at alsmoot, S-M-O-O-T-87, at gmail.com. On January 18, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will have a roundabout. Education and technology from 3.30 to 5, discussion time 5 to 6, dinner 6 to 7, games and crafts 7 until 10. At United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville, call 502-895-4598. On January 20, the KSB alumni will hold a board meeting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. On January 21, the Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its January board meeting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. 669-900-6833, enter code 3572-595-193. And on January 23, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will have a peer support group meeting from noon to 2 p.m. at the BCB office, 1093 South Broadway in Lexington. For more information, call 859-259-1834. On January 24, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have another support group meeting from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. For more information, call 502-895-4598. And on January 25, GLCB will have another roundabout, Education and Technology, 3.30 to 5, Tip Sheet, 5 to 5.30, Page Turners, with your chance to share good books with others, as well as a Tri-State Library Users Meeting from 5 to 6, Dinner 6 to 7, and KCB Next Generation Activity, Games and Crafts beginning at 7 p.m. For more information and to sign up, call 502-895-4598. On January 27, will be an ACB Families Support Group Meeting, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Participate from anywhere in the country by calling 712-432-3900 and entering code 796096. On January 28 is a Guide Dog Users of Kentuckyana membership meeting, 7 p.m. by phone. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. Looking ahead to a couple of important meetings, February 23, 24, and 25 is the ACB mid-year meetings, including the President's Meeting, ACB Board Meeting, and the Legislative Seminar and Visit to Capitol Hill. And 
July 5 to July 12, is the 58th ACB National Conference and Convention in Rochester, New York. More information on both events coming soon. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.